You are listening to the Grace Church of Mabton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers Matthew 28. Thanks for listening and happy Easter. Well, thank you, Everett, but thank you especially to our kids and youth again. What a great job. And thank you to all of you parents out there for sharing your kids and youth with us, for bringing them to church, for letting us invest in them. What a joy. Can, can I just say, no offense to all of you non-kids out there, but the kids and the young people are my favorite part of church and of ministry. So thank you for bringing them and sharing them with us. We're going to take the next few minutes here to think together a little bit about what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 28 about Jesus, about him being raised from the dead. And I want to also encourage and challenge us to think about our own lives as well. What does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, what does that mean or imply for me and for my life? How does that give me hope? How should my life be changed? And so we have an outline to go with our sermon today. It'll be up here on the screen. If you'd like to follow along also in your bulletin, if you find a page in your bulletin that looks like this, you'll see it has the three points there that we'll work through in our message today. And the three points you can see there, first we'll talk about the resurrection story itself, Jesus being raised from the dead. Second, we'll think about our response. What kind of response does that require from us? And then third, we'll talk about the mission that Jesus gives for us and for our lives. So first, the resurrection story. So here we're in the book of Matthew in the Bible, and we're in chapter 28, and you may notice if you're looking in your Bible that Everett read all the way down to the very end of the book of Matthew. We jumped into the end of this book. The book of Matthew in the first 27 chapters tells the story of Jesus' life. It starts with Jesus being born, the Christmas story, just a little bit about his childhood, then a lot about Jesus out teaching and doing miracles and so on. Then when we get to the last few chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus gets himself into some trouble. He goes into the city of Jerusalem. This is all 2,000 years ago now. He goes into the city of Jerusalem where the religious leaders there, they don't like what Jesus is saying and what he's teaching. They arrest him. They put him on trial. They throw some unfair charges at him, and they get him condemned to death. And so if you read through chapter 27 of Matthew, this book of Matthew, we read the story of how Jesus died, and it's a very sad story how he was beaten and tortured, nailed to a cross to be crucified, a cross not unlike the cross we have on the wall here, and that's where Jesus died. Then after he died, in the end of chapter 27, his followers came along, they took his body, and they put his body in a tomb. This would have been kind of like a a small cave, like a hole carved into a hillside where they would bury multiple bodies in one tomb. His body was put in this tomb, a large stone rolled in front of it for security reasons. Guards posted outside the tomb to make sure nobody messes with the body. And so Jesus dies on the cross. He's put in the tomb on a Friday. The next day is Saturday when Jewish people like Jesus and his followers, they don't do any work on Saturday. It's the Sabbath. And so now Sunday rolls around. And Sunday now would be the third day since Jesus died. Friday when he died, that's day one. Saturday he's in the tomb, that's day two. Sunday now, this is the third day, day three. And so Matthew chapter 28 now, picking up in our text here, tells us that it's on this 
Third day that Jesus is in the tomb, the first day of the week, Sunday morning, the two women went to the tomb, and both of them have the name Mary. Mary was a very common name at that time, so they're both named Mary, two Marys on their way to the tomb. Sounds like the start of a joke almost, doesn't it? But Mary and Mary are on their way to the tomb. When they get there, things are not at all like they expect. It's very strange, in fact. Verse 2 tells us there's a great earthquake as they approach the tomb. The ground shakes. And there's an earthquake because an angel from heaven came down, rolled back this large stone, and now he's sitting on the stone, we read. I don't know what happens in your life on a day-to-day basis, but this has never happened in my life. See an angel like this. Verse 3 says his appearance was overwhelming, like lightning, bright, powerful. The angel speaks to the women. Well, first, I guess it tells us what the response of the guards were, if you saw that in verse 4. The guards, when they see this angel, what do they do? They tremble with fear. They, we read, became like dead men. In other words, they just flat passed out from terror when they saw the angel. The angel speaks to the women in verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. You're looking for Jesus, the angel says. The guy killed on that cross a couple days back. That's who you're looking for, right? Well, the angel says, he is not here. Now, if we stop right there, we would expect the angel to next explain where his body has gone. Where has his body been moved to? Oh, you know, some of his followers, they found a nicer tomb down the street and they've relocated him down there. You know, they picked up his body. Somebody wanted to do an autopsy. They picked up his body for an autopsy. You'll get the body back in a few days. But the angel has a very shocking explanation. He is not here. Why? For he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. You've got the right place. This is the right tomb. This is where his body was. But he's not here now because he got up and walked out of here. And he's alive and well. So the angel tells the women in verse 7, go and find all of his other followers. Tell them too the good news that Jesus is raised from the dead. Tell them to go to that place in Galilee, a place up north from where they were. Go up there where Jesus told them to go and Jesus is going to meet them too. And so in verse 8, the women do as the angel says. They run from the tomb with fear and great joy, we're told. They go to find his other followers to tell them as well the good news. The tomb is empty. There's an angel there saying Jesus is raised from the dead. So that's the basic story. That's the story of the resurrection. And that takes us then to our second point, our response This being true, Jesus being raised from the dead, how should we then respond? Perhaps you've had experiences like I've had when you've had someone that you have loved, a family member, a close friend who has died, and maybe you've been at their bedside as they were dying and after they have died, or or maybe you've been with their body a day or two later at a funeral home or someplace like that, And, and maybe you felt what I've felt in those kind of moments where you're looking at this loved one who's no longer alive and there's this deep sorrow along with this burning desire to just see them take a breath. 
to see some sign of life that this isn't really true, that they're not really dead. And no matter how much we wish that would happen in those moments, it doesn't happen. Because we know how the world works, sadly and unfortunately, that dead people stay dead. That's just how it is. People live, and when they die, that's it. And that's what these women, Mary and Mary, that's what they've experienced in life as well. They've seen death before. They've been to tombs before. They know how it works. People live and die. It's final every single time. All of human history, billions of people, that's the way it works. Well, a couple exceptions where God raises someone from the dead for a few more years and then they die again. But otherwise, that's how it works. Now here we have one person, one person alone in all the history of the world who has lived and died and then risen from the dead, never to die again. Only Jesus. One time in all the history of the world. So I think, well, that's an interesting Bible story. Okay, sure, yeah, I can believe that's true. Okay, but what's the big deal about that? Why, why does that matter? I'm, I kind of, I'm not sure if I should ask this question, but I'm going to. Has anybody here ever watched the Back to the Future movies, like from the 1980s? Okay, some of you have. I'm realizing I'm in this stage of life where when I ask a question like that, some of you are too young. You weren't born in the 1980s when those movies came out. And some of you, you were alive in the 1980s, but you were shall we say, mature in the 1980s. Unlike me in the 1980s, I was actually watching those movies and you were too mature for those movies. And I'm realizing that's what they mean by middle age. Half the people around me are too old to know this stuff and the other half are too young and I'm just stuck in the lonely middle. Well, anyway, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, back to the future. Okay, so in the, in, these movies came out in the 1980s and so in the second movie, Back to the Future Part Two, you have Marty McFly his girlfriend, Jen, and Doc. And they time travel into the future. So the movie is supposedly set in 1985. They time travel all the way into the future into 2015. Okay, can you imagine? Okay, 2015. And when they get to 2015, there's a scene where Doc and Marty are panicked, or Doc is panicked, because they realize that 1985 Jen, who has traveled into the future, may actually end up meeting 2015 Jen, and they might, like the same person, might meet one another, and they don't know what's going to happen if they do meet one another. And so Doc is panicking, and Marty asks, what could go wrong? And Doc says, well, I see two possibilities. One, Jen will simply go into shock when she sees herself, and she'll pass out. That's one possibility. Or two, he says the encounter would, could create a time paradox, the results of which could cause a chain reaction that would unravel the very fabric of the space-time continuum and destroy the entire universe. And so such a shock wave, the whole universe would be destroyed. Then Doc says, well, that's worst case scenario. It might just destroy our galaxy. And so Marty says, oh, what a relief, <laughs> just our galaxy. Now that's Back to the Future, of course, fun and imaginary 
movie. It was saying if we could actually time travel and, mute, and meet our future self, we have no idea what the ripple effects would be in the space-time continuum. Because it's never happened in reality. Here's Jesus raised from the dead, never to die again. What are the ripple effects? Well, the good news is it hasn't destroyed the entire universe. That's good. But it has disrupted the fabric of the entire universe. It's a game changer that turns everything on its head. Because no longer is the world just a place where people live and then die and that's it. But the world is now a resurrection world where Jesus has died and lives again eternally. This redefines the entire world as we know it. And it turns our attention to Jesus and forces us to ask the question, who is this guy? And what does this mean? And there's another passage of scripture in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that points to the resurrection of Jesus and says it's because of the resurrection that we know Jesus is indeed the one and only Son of God. It's because of the resurrection that Jesus is declared with power to be Lord. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He truly is king over all other kings, Lord over all other lords. There is no one like him, no one with power like him. Who else has ever conquered death itself? Find the most powerful king you can in the world. Have they ever conquered death? Only Jesus, only Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father where he reigns as eternal Lord. Only Jesus has conquered death. And so the moment Jesus rose from the dead, the world became a different kind of place. So what's our response? Well, our response has to be to Jesus. How do we respond to Jesus being raised from the dead? And here in our text, Matthew chapter 28, these two women, Mary and Mary, they're examples for us of how to respond. How do they respond? Well, verse 8 says, after they had heard these angels' words, they'd seen the angel, heard the angel say, he is risen from the dead. And verse 8, these women, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So notice those two emotions they had, fear and joy. They have fear because they don't know what this means. Kind of like Doc in Back to the Future. What comes next? There's never been anything like this in the history of the world. What's around the corner? You know, and it's scary when we don't know what's coming next. And so they're afraid. But they also have joy. Because they know that whatever is coming with Jesus being raised from the dead, it's certainly better than what, what was before. Surely a world where death is conquered by someone like Jesus is a better world than one where death still reigns and Jesus is dead in the tomb. So there's joy, excitement, fear, nervousness. What's next? Then in verse 9, Jesus appears to them. And this is, this is fascinating. He may be now king of kings and lord of lords exalted, but he still remembers the little people. And he shows up 
to Mary and Mary, and he meets them and he says, greetings, like it's any other day. You know, I almost, don't you wish Jesus would have said, he is risen, and seen if they said, he is risen indeed, right? Greetings, he says. And notice how the women respond. Face to face now with Jesus raised from the dead. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. They're holding his feet, meaning they're bowing down before him, worshiping Jesus as God. They immediately know, they believe, they know it to be true. Jesus is raised from the dead, he is Lord. They're surrendering their lives to Jesus, giving all of their praise to him. How should we respond to Jesus raised from the dead? Well, the same way, worshiping him, bowing in our hearts before him, surrendering our lives to him. And you know, for us, like for these women, that can be a little bit of a scary thought. If we've lived our whole lives not worshiping Jesus, not knowing he's raised from the dead, not acknowledging, believing this, then it can be scary to think about how doing this, worshiping him, believing in him, might change our lives. What comes next after we believe in Jesus like that? That can be a little scary. But there's also great joy in realizing that Jesus has the great victory. That when we belong to him, he is so good to us. He gives us new life right here and right now. The promise that we'll be like him in the resurrection one day, raised with him never to, never to die again. He fills us with goodness and hope. And so there's great joy in giving our lives to Jesus and worshiping him. Along with a little nervousness. What's this going to mean for me if I give my life to him and bow before him? And so this takes us to our third and final point then. What does life look like following Jesus, giving our lives to him? And now we come to our mission. Our mission. This is our third and final point. If you keep reading through Matthew chapter 28, you'll find we kind of skipped over verses 11 through 15. There's a little side story there. You can go back and read it about how some of the people in that day tried to push a little conspiracy story about Jesus, that he wasn't really raised from the dead. But then we get to verse 16. And Jesus now gathers 11 of his closest followers. We call them the apostles. He gathers these closest followers. And they see Jesus, and like the women, they worship him, but they also have their own doubts and fears. But then in verse 18, Jesus gives the mission. He says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the risen king, Jesus says. I have all authority. And then out of his authority as king comes the command in verse 19. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here Jesus uses this very important word, disciple. Disciple. Go and make disciples. To be a disciple simply means to be a follower of Jesus. We've surrendered our lives to him. We believe in him. We've grabbed his feet like the women do. And now we say, I'm going to follow you. Be a disciple. And Jesus tells us here, what does it look like to be a disciple? He says, well, first you need to be baptized. 
if you're going to be my disciple and follow me. This is kind of one of those weird things we do as Christians where we fill up a tank of water. In this nice pretty wood box right here, there's actually a tank in there that fills up with water. So when we say yes to following Jesus, I want to be his disciple, Jesus says, okay, I've got all the authority. You're bowed down to me, surrender your life to me. I say be baptized. We say, huh? But we also say, yes, Lord. And so we get in a tank of water and we're baptized in obedience to Jesus. And in that baptism, we proclaim to one another and to others, to our world, I believe in Jesus. I am his disciple. I belong to him. And all of us who are disciples, myself included, we've all been baptized. If you want to be a disciple, you've got to be baptized. But then baptism, it's not the whole picture. In fact, that's just the beginning of a great adventure of following Jesus. Because Jesus says the next part of being a disciple in verse 20, he says, is learning to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, no big deal. Just learn how to obey everything I've ever said in all of your life. Well, here's the lifelong project that we all have as disciples of growing, of learning about Jesus, of being changed in our hearts and our lives so we actually live according to his ways. And that's kind of an overwhelming thought. We look at our own lives and think, does Jesus know what a fixer-upper I am? How much work that's going to take? For me, I got so much to learn, so far to go. But I can tell you this, there's, this is my conviction, it's growing deeper and deeper with time, there's no better way to live than following Jesus. And I'm just being honest, I've already kind of confessed that I'm middle age, you know, that age where Back to the Future is like my kind of movie. I'm not that old, at least not compared to some of you. Eh? But the longer I've lived, and the more time I've spent listening to people, to their stories, and in my job as a pastor, I often spend a lot of time listening to people, hearing about life. I can tell you, life is hard. Life is full of pain and brokenness and emptiness. All of us are choosing in one way or another how we're going to live life. What will guide us? What path will I follow? We all want to be happy. We all want to live the best life we can. We want the most joy and the most fullness in life we can have. But the reality is that many of our choices, the paths we follow in life, they lure us into thinking that they give us happiness only to let us down. Just chase this career a little further. Just make a little more money. This relationship will make you happy. Get out of that relationship and then you'll be happy. A little more success over here in sports, at work, whatever. Just a little more. Work a little harder. Give a little more. Happiness is always just around the corner, just out of reach. And we end up with disappointment. We end up with sorrow, with anxiety, depression even. Life just isn't working the way it's supposed to be. And we run out of hope. You know, if there's a better path out there, than the path of following Jesus, I'm yet to see it. Because following Jesus brings such hope, enormous hope. Why? Because Jesus lives. He lives up to 
whatever expectations we have, and he exceeds them. He delivers on his promises in a big way. Because he has defeated death, he reigns as Lord. When we trust in him and follow him, he gives us new life. And this is the good news of Jesus, that he meets us right where we're at. Following Jesus, being his disciple, it starts right where we are today. You may say, man, my life, though, is pretty bad. If you know the choices I've made, things I've done, pain I carry, I don't know that Jesus wants to work with someone like me. And Jesus says, if I can put words in his mouth, Jesus says, I defeated death, bro, or sister. I can work with you. I can work with you. Just come to me, give it all to me, and I can take it. And then Jesus says, okay, now that you've surrendered to me, put your faith in me, let's get to work in your life. Here's what I'm going to do, Jesus says, now that you belong to me. I'm going to forgive all of your sins. How does that sound? Let's just wipe the record clean. I mean, I died for them after all. Let's just do it. Now you trust in me. I'm going to make you new. Give you a new heart. Put my spirit in you. I'm going to give you peace and hope and joy. And we're going to get to work changing you. You're going to get yourself baptized. And then you're going to learn to obey me in all things. But don't worry, because I'll be with you. Always with you, Jesus says. And we're going to work on it together. We're going to work on that anger you're carrying so you can learn to forgive. We're going to bring some healing to those hurts and pains. What about the big mess of my life, though? I mean, I have consequences from all my choices piled up all around me. My home, my family, my life, it's all messed up. Just says, okay, but just remember, being my disciple, it's a lifelong project. It's not going to all get fixed overnight, but I'm here. I'm guiding you giving you grace, giving you strength. We'll work through the difficult things. Oh, and by the way, you're not alone. Because it turns out you're not my only disciple, Jesus says. There's a bunch of them. And in the Bible, there's no such thing as a solo disciple. Disciples always come together, work together, helping one another and following Jesus. And do you know what it's called when all the disciples come together and work together and help one another grow in following Jesus? It's called the church. That's what we are right here. A room full of disciples following Jesus together, helping one another along the way, making disciples of one another. And that's why Jesus says, not just be my disciple, but make disciples. It's a team project. Learn to follow me, and as you do, help others to learn to follow me too. So we're not alone, we're all in it together. That's what we do here in our church week in and week out through worship services, through Cultivate Wednesday night meals, Bible classes, all discipleship together. And as you get to know us, what you'll find is that all of us have the same kind of story. We're all unique in our own ways, but the same kind of story. All of us have a life that was or that would be a mess apart from Jesus. But in Jesus and through Jesus, raised from the dead, we all have hope. And we're experiencing his healing and his work in our lives as we follow him.
And that's why we don't think less of one another for the hard things we have in our lives. We've all been there too. But thank you, Lord, for Jesus. He is risen. risen And that is good news today. Because the world is a different kind of world. The space-time continuum has been unraveled. The world has been turned on its head. And it's good news for us today. And so may all of us here, each one of us, respond to Jesus by believing in him, surrendering our lives to him, receiving his hope and his joy. May we all follow him faithfully as his disciples, being baptized and learning to obey all his commands. And may we all know and experience the great joy that comes when we have hope in him. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.